And I'll say welcome back as we're getting to this relatively new study on how we got the Bible. Last week, the first lesson on introduction. Today is the second lesson on Revelation, although it's going to feel like the first proper lesson as we get into uh, the, the body of this study. Let me open in a word of prayer and we will get going. Our Lord God in heaven, we pray for this evening that you bless our time, bless this study, help us to learn from your word, about your word. See the work of your hands in creation and the work of your hands in scripture as well. And we, we glory, we glorify you for both of them, Lord, how you have revealed yourself to us without which we could not know you. So we thank you for your revelation. May we learn much about it tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So like I said, this is the first proper lesson as we get into the, the bulk of the study on how we got the Bible and the way we're organizing this is the, the links in the chain from when the Bible was given and written to as we receive it and have it today. And how did that process happen? What, what were those links in that chain? And that's what we're going to set out to study. The first link, of course, is revelation. God has to, to give something. He's got to reveal something. Otherwise, there's nothing to write down. There's nothing to, to read. God must reveal himself. So that's what we'll study tonight. This one is, is basic. It starts off nice and easy for you. Revelation is not terribly complex. It'll ramp up as we get into transmission and talk about manuscripts, but all that's to come. So tonight we'll just get into Revelation. This will just be a one-parter, and then next time we'll get into the second link in the chain, which is Inspiration, and that will be a, a multi-parter. But let's, let's start here. Revelation. Not the book of the Bible, but the, the process, the, the verb to reveal. Revelation concerns the origin and giving of truth about God. And keep in mind, when we talk about revelation in Scripture, it's not a discovery, it's a disclosure. It's not that man is seeking to discover what God has said. It is rather God is disclosing what he has said, and that's just how it is. There's no searching for it. God delivers, and, and we receive. In other words, God cannot be fully known by man's own efforts in searching for the truth. Like Buddhists, for example, believe you must go on a quest, a search for nirvana for enlightenment you have to seek it and find it and christianity differs in that that the process of knowing god it's not a discovery per se it's it's a disclosure god exists and he has already disclosed all the truth about him that you need to know it's merely accepting it or rejecting it Uh, everyone agrees that a measure about god can be learned from the world around us but if we're if we're to know god more fully God must choose to reveal himself to us more fully. And that's what we study in Revelation. The Bible is specifically the written revelation of God. Throughout history, God has disclosed parts of himself and his will, his plan, his character, his deeds to certain men. We call these men prophets, typically. And these men of God, they later recorded the revelation they received. Not everyone received this direct revelation or specific revelation. Some did, a few. And they wrote it down for posterity. And that's the the product of that is scripture. That their recordings were true and accurate and without error and authoritative. That's what we cover in inspiration. The fact that we can trust that initial written record. That'll be next time and to follow But that first link in the chain is the process by which God revealed himself in in many ways to to us today, in certain ways, to the prophets directly. That's what we need to cover first, and that is revelation. That's where we begin tonight. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means disclosure, an unveiling. That's Again, that's the picture 
God is merely unveiling and disclosing himself to us. We'll see later, there is a general revelation whereby man can know of God's existence and some aspects of his character through the created order, but to know God better and certainly to know salvation, God's specific plan of redemption, there has to be a, what we would call a special revelation. The Bible is this special revelation, God's special self-disclosure of himself to man. But as you know, in the Bible, God is not only telling us about his character. That's a huge part of it. He's also telling us about his, his history, the things he has done in the past. And there's a theme to that, namely surrounding his redemptive history, how he has redeemed this fallen creation, fallen man. And so it's also chiefly a message of, of salvation. Without that message, that special revelation, there, there would be no access to salvation on our own. The Bible contains a body of truth that God wants man to know about himself and his plan of salvation. And if God did not reveal himself in a special way, man could not know God. Now I mentioned general revelation, special revelation. That's, that's the twofold way of, of organizing the revelation of God. And that's good. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's, it's pretty helpful. But first, just to introduce you to the subject, there's another way to categorize the different ways God has revealed himself so we'll start with these forms of revelation. There's a, a fourfold way to classify or categorize the ways in which God has revealed himself to man. And they're worth knowing just for your own edification and instruction. Some basic info as we're establishing this first link in the chain, God revealing himself to us. He's actually revealed himself to man in, in several different ways, different forms. We're, of course, most concerned about the written form. That's what this is all about, how we got the Bible. But it's worth knowing the other forms. So let's, let's start just to survey some of these other forms of revelation, God revealing himself to us, starting with the least detailed, the, the least informative, proceeding to the more detailed and informative. So you start with number one, observed revelation. Just simply that which can be known about God by observation, by your human faculties, your, your sight, your hearing even. Not suggesting that observed revelation is unimportant, but it only says so much. You can only learn so much about God from nature, from the created order, from observation. But God certainly does reveal some truths about himself in ways that can be observed by our human faculties. And what God does reveal in this way is true. It is clear. It's just limited. It's very limited. We'll see later some truths about God can be observed in creation, but also in history, also in the human conscience. Well, we'll save that for a little bit. These are all forms of observed revelation, though, and God just disclosing himself in a general way to all people without distinction. So everyone can see this observed revelation. Secondly, though, we have oral or spoken revelation, and you probably can already tell this is a higher form of revelation. When God speaks, he does so to reveal more about himself, more than nature says. Something more needs to be said. Nature, creation, conscience only tells us so much. It gives us a small snapshot of God. It's like looking through a keyhole. You only get a, a limited view of the picture. And, and when God speaks, he's, giving, he's filling out that picture. He's telling us more about himself that we otherwise would not have known or could not have known just simply from observation. Normally, we would say a picture is worth a thousand words. When it comes to God's revelation, actually the opposite is true. 
God's word is worth a thousand pictures of creation. His word revealing himself to us tells us more than simply that looking around creation. He's going to tell us way more than we could simply observe by looking around. Different ways God can speak and has spoken. We'll, we'll survey some of those later. There's decree, personal ad- address. He can speak to people individually, corporately. He can make declarations. We will see that in a little bit. So we go from observed revelation to oral or spoken, that, he, that which he directly reveals to a person or a group of people, obviously for a purpose. A third form of revelation is written revelation. And you get the distinction, obviously. There's only been a select few individuals throughout history who have received God's oral revelation, that God actually spoke to them. A lot of people say that. People hear voices. But we're at least concerned with the prophets, the Old and New Testament prophets and the apostles, men who at least claim to hear from God in one way or another. It's only a small number, though, when you look at all of biblical history in that regard, who received an authoritative, inspired word from the Lord. It's actually a very small number of, of men who we would deem, like I said, the prophets. And if God wanted, he could only reveal himself to those people, and he could only do so orally. And pe- those prophets could have passed down their message entirely with oral tradition. You've heard of oral tradition before. It's ways in which some old cultures or primitive cultures Cultures without a written language would pass down knowledge. Just you memorize. You pass it down orally. Everything is just passed down like a story, like a big game of telephone throughout generations. A lot of people think the Bible was passed down orally from some time, but that's really been challenged of late, especially as we learn more and more. We've never doubted. It's, It's been evident that, for example, Israel's history, they've been a literate culture that the common person could read and write. Scholars have doubted that, Because we think of the ancients as being inferior or just dumb or uneducated compared to us today. But actually they find more and more archaeological records of just common, like for example, the time of the Exodus or or Israel's slavery in Egypt. They've uncovered just shopping lists, just between common people, not between kings and rulers, just random lists, random details, letters like, hey, bring me this, orders. Receipts from transaction that these these are just common people that could read they could write. Uh, all this goes to say a little bit of a tangent, but God wanted His word, His revelation, His specific revelation, not just observed. He wanted it known by by more people than just the prophets. How was He going to get that revelation to other people that that didn't receive it directly? Well, it could be passed down orally. They could have just orally repeated it and memorized it. You see the limitations with that. Our memory is is fleeting and decaying, and it can only go so far. And so God decided to have some of the prophets write down that which they saw or heard for the sake of future generations, for others. A couple verses to throw in here. For example, Jeremiah 30, verse 2. God said to, to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. That's pretty direct. I mean, God told Jeremiah, write it down. And we don't, we don't see a claim like that or a statement like that in every single prophetic writing, but eventually they did write it down because we, we have them today. Similar, Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 and 26. It says, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, 
that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it might, uh, may remain there as a witness against you. Moses, that, that grand mediator, as he received the law from the Lord, it was immediately written down into a book, a scroll contained, later placed in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, right away, a written record of what God had commanded. There is a lot of stuff, right? They're pretty detailed. There's no way they're, they're memorizing that while they're standing there at Mount Sinai. I mean, it had to be written down. It was. As it was passed through Moses, it was written down, codified, and passed along. So this is not to say that God's other words are, are meaningless. His other revelation that wasn't written down is meaningless. So some was not written down. God had reasons for that. But these are the words he wanted all people to know. This is what he wanted recorded for a reason. And so this is thirdly written revelation. So from observed to oral to written, each time getting more specific, more detailed, telling us more about God. A fourth form of revelation you may not have thought of before, but it is the highest form of God's self-disclosure to man, God's re- revealing of himself to man, and it is, we could call it, incarnate revelation. And you get where I'm going here, talking about Jesus. This is the final and the highest form the highest way God reveals himself to man. It is incarnate revelation in the person of his son, Jesus. You realize that's one of the things Jesus came to do, to disclose the truer nature of God, not contradicting the Old Testament, but further revealing, taking the revelation of God further in his own person as he was indeed even God incarnate. This is why we see Jesus being called the Word of God. You see in John 1, John uses the the Greek word logos, the Word, as synonymous with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. You see in Revelation 19, verse 13, when Christ comes back, it says, He's clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He is synonymous with the word of God. God's word is is his power, and Christ is, you could say, that the word of God incarnate, revealing the most uh, by far of any form of revelation. And that was one of his grand purposes. Jesus is pictured as the word of God personified. And this is why the person of Jesus, that the character, his words, especially his deeds, they're all forms of God's direct revelation. Again, this doesn't mean that the words of Jesus are more inspired than the other words of the Bible. That's not true. The words in red are there in your Bible to show you what he said. But they're not more inspired than that, that which is in black. But at the same time, we see in Christ just the highest form God's communication with man can take, where he humbled himself and took on human flesh and and became one of us to reveal himself to us more fully. I'll read some verses for you. Luke 2:32 in the birth account of Jesus, he's described as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. The coming of Jesus, he was a light of revelation. That's what we're saying. God's God's revealing himself to even the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the the Gentiles would would know God through the Christ. John 1.18, 
John comments and says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Remember in our deity of Christ, we saw that's a verse where Jesus is called God. He's the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father. And, and he came to explain the Father in, in a way, in a profound way. No one has seen the Father. God is spirit. But this condescension of Christ, this humility in, in taking on a human nature, the self-limiting that he did to, to live as a man, did so in a way to, to let us know about God in, in a way we, we couldn't otherwise know. You can't handle the, the knowledge of God at that high a level. And God is transcendent, so far above us. God, through Christ, had to condescend and humble himself to be like us that we might know him more. And that's what Christ did. We'll learn shortly about that condescension in Philippians 2. Sunday morning's coming up pretty quick. You could also mention Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Talk about revelation. He's he's the snapshot, the the perfect picture of God and his his person. And Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation uh, representation of his nature. That's some good revelation. You have a, a living, breathing, walking, incarnate, Word, the Word of God, the revelation of God right there. And you know Jesus revealed by far the most about God in ways no one else could have, not even the greatest prophets. So that's just for your instruction as we ease into this first link in the chain of revelation. That's a fourfold way of classifying God's forms of of revealing himself to man. And it's helpful to think about it in these terms of God's observed oral, written, incarnate revelation. Now, let's take it another layer deeper, I guess you could say, and, and revisit that twofold division. It's, it's more common. You've heard it, I'm sure, before, general revelation, special revelation. And so let's revisit this twofold classification now and take them further. Uh, because in, in the end, though, I do think it's probably the best way to understand God's revelation We're eventually getting to his special revelation because within that comes the Bible. That's the written version of the special revelation. But why don't we start just to revisit general revelation. There will be some overlap here with that observed revelation, but this is a good twofold way to to categorize, to understand how God has revealed himself. So let's move on now to general revelation. General revelation is God's unwritten and unspoken communication to man. It does link up to that observed revelation we talked about earlier. This is how God reveals himself to us indirectly. But it's not just to us. God reveals himself in this manner to all people. Anyone who's ever lived has received the general, (coughs) excuse me, the general revelation of God. He gives this to all people without distinction, all times, all locations, all across the globe. Everyone has the general revelation of God. That is not true of the special revelation of God. Not all cultures, not all peoples throughout time have had access to the special revelation of God. We can talk about that later or debate that later or ponder that later. I mentioned the Native Americans this morning. These are two continents, North and South America, who for, you know, The vast majority of human history had zero, as far as we know at least, special revelation. All they had was general revelation. Save that for some other time. But 
All we're establishing here is the fact uh, of general revelation, which comes primarily through nature, through the created world. You can think of the, the stars and the sun, the moon, the heavenly bodies usually is what we think of the most because they're so magnificent that they strike awe and wonder into us. They immediately humble us. We see how small we are. Even though the, the sun is a small circle in the sky, we can, we can sense the magnitude of it in a way and just the intensity of it. The vast number of stars is incredible in the night sky. The ocean, the vastness of the ocean. You feel big until you, you go in the ocean and then you, you feel real small real quick. As we've advanced, you know, the human body more, DNA is, is mind-boggling. The amount of information coded in the, the, the drop of a, a, blo- a drop of blood or that could balance on the tip of a needle. The amount of information there is, is astronomical. And all of this reveals God. All of this reveals that the fingerprints of God, God's been there. God did that. It's telling us something about God. Why don't you turn now to Psalm 19? We can look at a few of these. Here's the classic passage on general revelation. You think general revelation? You're going to think Psalm 19, 1 through 6. So turn there now. Psalm 19. And I'll read verses 1 through 6. David says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So here in these first six verses, David is extolling the glory of God as revealed in nature. It's all in verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands, and the remaining verses go on to explain that and expound upon that. that. That's what it's really about. You look in creation from the stars to the sun, and they just declare the glory of God. It didn't come from nowhere. It is nonsensical, although some want to believe it today, hardened in their, in their minds and hearts and conscience against God, to think the complete illogic, completely illogical thought and irrational thought that everything came from nothing, a total contradiction in logic and science. It makes no sense. It's only believed because it's the only option other than God. So you have to believe it, but to think of the, the vastness of this universe coming from nothing is, is foolish. Indeed, the fool would say in his heart, there is no God. We know where it came from, and it, it came from God. It, it's, we'll see later in a minute in Romans 1, God programmed that knowledge into our hearts. You have to work to deny it and suppress it through your wickedness, which some have done. But we know, and we can actually glorify God from what we see in creation because it has his fingerprints all over it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. It teaches us his existence, his power, his beauty. Anyone into art? Anyone into fine art here? I guess, Tim, you got to be into art, right? We have an artist in our midst. I know, it's okay. 
But if you ever see a piece of fine art, whatever floats your boat and something you admire, it, it, it takes you back. You see something, if you're like me, and you think, I could never do that. Never in a million years. It's, it's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. And, and you, you, you worship, in a sense, in a non-irreverent sense, right? You, you, you extol the creator. You praise the creator. You pat him on the back or her on the back. You, you sing their praises. You write a good review about them. It's built into us to see something worthy and to, and to praise, in a sense. And creation is, is the greatest work of art in all aspects of it, and it demands the praise of God. That's what one of the reasons God made the world the way it is, that it would declare his glory. And he made us as, as vessels to, to give praise. Of course, in sin, we don't. We rob God of that praise. And uh, for which we are judged, but we're thankful in our redemption we've been able to see God for who he is and, and even see creation for what it is, telling of the glory of God. So that's general revelation. That's, that's how it functions. Another good verse here to build onto it is, like I mentioned, Romans 1. So you can turn there and if you really want, keep a thumb in Psalm 19 for later. Uh, but anyway, Romans chapter 1. Here's that verse, speaking of those who suppress the truth of God, seen in general revelation. I'm sure these verses are familiar to you, Romans 1, 18 through 21. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are Pushing it down. It's like something that's come out of a bottle and they're trying to squeeze it back in and suppress the truth. Why? In their unrighteousness. He says, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. He built in the knowledge of God through through simply observing creation. It's within our hearts we know there's a God. The, the stamp of God is in our hearts, on our bodies, and all are without excuse. And so he says, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And he goes on to speak of the judgment that will come to them for this. But that's what man in sin has done, especially at an early age. You look at the, the purity of kids and they, they know there's a creator and that their hearts are very impressionable. I remember, I won't mention names, I'll just say I knew someone who, when she was a young girl, obviously, well, it's going to be a relative, but... She had a Bible and wrote on the side, you know, I love God. But not too long after that, after the innocence of youth just really went off the deep end and, and turned the, the corner and, and now doesn't believe in God, denies God. But people know in their heart of hearts that they know there's a maker. They know they've been made. They're the work of God's hands as a creator. But in sin, in our fallenness, we seek and serve self. We don't want to acknowledge this creator because if there's a God, if he made us, he is Lord over us. He wrote the rules. We have to follow his rules. We don't want to follow his rules. We want to go our way. We want 
what is pleasing to us. We don't want to be slaves of righteousness and, and, and sin. We're slaves of unrighteousness. And in that unrighteousness, we suppress the truth and deny the obvious. It says they knew God, verse 21. God made it clear. So you can't argue with that. God made it clear to them. It was evident within them, yet they denied, they suppressed, they exchanged the truth for a lie. Professing to be wise, they became fools, verse 22. What did they fail to do, verse 21? They failed to honor God. They failed to give thanks. That actually tells us how we should respond to general revelation. As you see general general revelation, especially through what has been made, verse 20, the proper response is to honor God and give thanks. It should be evident. Well, somebody made this. It's God. There is a God. He made this. At the very least, I should honor this God. You see, from the world, the world is in order, not disorder. This is a God of order. It's very clear from creation. Water doesn't flow uphill. It always flows downhill. You know, there's constants in the world. Gravity, it always works. And there's no exceptions. It's a world of order. This is a God of order. I should, I should praise this God of order. I should live an ordered life. We'll talk later about the conscience reveals even a morality behind God. So there's things we can learn from this created world, and we should honor him as God, as the creator, and give thanks. Children instinctively know to honor their parents in a way as their maker, so to speak. We should all the more so instinctively know to honor God. These are things we can learn from general revelation. But you can still see, though, it's, it's limited, right? You can see how God is, is all-powerful from creating the vastness of this universe, but you, you won't know of his specific dealings with, with Israel, for example, or any other people group. You have no knowledge. It has to be revealed to you. We'll get to that later. So general revelation primarily comes through creation. There are a couple other ways, though, that we receive general revelation, this unspoken revelation. Also in providence and conscience. Providence, you can see the hand of God guiding human history, providing the means for for life on earth. Also, God programs all people with a conscience, which although it can be distorted, contains God's sense of right and wrong. The conscience can be hardened, can be suppressed, can be killed. But like I said, from early age until that hardening takes place, everyone has a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Where did that come from? It came from God. He programmed us with an imprint of basic morality, a basic knowledge of right and wrong as he defines it. God writes his law in man's heart, revealing what is acceptable and unacceptable, and that's a form of revelation. God is revealing part of his basic morality to us in that way. That's a general revelation. General revelation uh, reveals many key attributes of God, and like I said, they're limited, but what it does reveal is clear and true. What it does reveal, it's clear and true. That said, general revelation, it is only sufficient to condemn. It is not sufficient to save. You saw that back in Romans 1. It's sufficient to condemn them because they, they, they know God. They know enough to honor him and give thanks, but as they refuse to do so, fail to do so, they only stand condemned. General revelation can condemn, but it cannot save. There's no message of salvation. Since we know we can't save ourselves through good works, through efforts, we are helpless and hopeless and dead. We need a savior. 
And salvation comes by faith in that Savior, trust in that Savior. A general revelation is not sufficient to save. A few verses here. I'll just mention these real quick for you. What attributes of God are revealed through general revelation? You see a few examples. For example, in Matthew 5.45, Jesus mentions that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You could observe how all nations, all people groups, they're, they're taken care of. They have sun, they have rain, they have crops, they have food for life. That's simply God's general mercy to the good and the bad. From that, you can learn that this is a benevolent God, even a merciful God, even giving at times the wicked what they don't deserve. Somewhat similar, Acts 14, 15 through 17, Paul, um, men are uh, committing idolatry, and he says, men, why are you doing these things? They're they're trying to worship him and and, uh, I think Barnabas, right? He says, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. He says, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness. In that, he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul himself points to general revelation and God's providence saying these are witnesses. God left himself a witness to these people that he's there, he exists, he's even good, and they should acknowledge that. They should not worship Paul, a creature. They should acknowledge the creator. They know they have a creator, and they should worship him as such. Over in Daniel 2.21, he points out God's sovereignty revealed through his providence. He says, it is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. In a sense, you can see the hand of God in in kingdoms rising and falling and his providence over the course of human history. So from providence to to conscience, you should still be in Romans 1. Just turn the page to Romans 2. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is where he mentions conscience. He talks about the Jews who have the law. They've fallen short of their law. And that's law with a capital L, the law of Moses. The Gentiles, though, they're not off the hook. Did the Gentiles have the law of Moses? No. So were they accountable to the law of Moses? No. The Gentiles in the Old Testament period, if they ate seafood or worked on the Sabbath, it was not a sin. They're not held accountable to a law that's not theirs. But that doesn't mean they're totally off the hook because they have a law. What law? Not the law of Moses. That was not given to them. But they have the law written on their hearts that God has done for all people. Romans 2, 14, 15. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Here you see Paul basically establishing the the fact of the human conscience as from God, the law of God written on the inner man, that that's our conscience. It's the voice of God to the soul 
on right and wrong. And God programmed that in. You look at some of the Ten Commandments, for example, which capture some basic law. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Aren't those essentially universal laws? Think about this. This is actually, side note here, a little tangent I'll take you on, that this you could use this as an argument for the existence of God. I've done this with people. Ask them, especially when they start talking about the problem of evil. Like, I just can't believe in a God because there's so much evil in the world. And so maybe you're talking to an atheist. If you're talking to an atheist, you should confront him or her and say, you don't believe in evil. There's no such thing as evil. If there's no God, there's no such thing as evil. From in the one sense, we're just cosmic space dust came from the Big Bang. Pretty soon we'll disintegrate back to space dust. We're just a bunch of atoms that, that mean nothing. There's apart from God, there is no ultimate meaning, meaning rather. There's no right and wrong. We're just a bunch of atoms in a configuration doing something for now by chance, by time and chance. And eventually you won't. But you can't argue for any sense of morality or right and wrong apart from God. Now, of course, that's not how they live. They believe in morality. So you have to challenge them. Well, where did you get your morality, your sense of right and wrong? Or better yet, who defines right and wrong? Who defines morality? Is it the individual? Does the individual define morality? Well, no, no one believes that. Although some might want to say that. No one believes that. Because... Well, if, if you really believe that, well, I'm just going to come to your house and, and rob you. I'm going to take everything you have, and you can't do anything about it because, to me, that's good. That's right. That, that's According to my individual morals, that's a virtue. So you should have no problem with that, right? No, of course not. That No one lives by that standard. It's an unlivable standard. It's, it's false, and it's, it's irrefutable. No one and no culture has ever truly lived by an individual morality. But then they might say, oh, it's a corporate morality, the, the culture, a community that determines morality. And in some sense, like traffic laws, that's true. But not in this universal sense. Every single culture has assented to certain morality, like murder and rape, for example. But if you say the community defines morality, then you can't judge the, the, the Nazis. You have nothing to say against them because according to that culture... They were just doing what they thought was right. They thought it was a virtue. They thought that the you know, Aryan race was the master race and Jews, homosexuals, and, and others needed to be eradicated and eliminated from the, the stream. Hey, that's just Darwinism, right? That, that was literally social and, and uh, that was an unnatural selection of social Darwinism gone awry. Uh, that's, that, they're just being consistent, though. They were doing what they thought was right. That whole community, that whole country... To them, that was a virtue. So how can you say they're wrong? You should say that actually that's right because they were doing what they thought was right. Of course, no one's going to say that as well. Because the fact of the matter is, it's not individuals who define morality or even communities. There is a universal morality that has no other explanation. Where did it come from? Why is it that every culture, every community across the globe for all history has held to a certain morality of do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, for example. It's uh, where to come from. Who defines that standard? Who's imprinted that standard on every person's heart throughout history? We know the answer. It is God. There's always exceptions because men are depraved and will eventually harden their conscience and, and act wickedly. And that's why the Nazis came about, right? There was a country of depraved people far from God. 
But on that little tangent, you could take that argument further and look up the, that argument for the existence of God. The very fact that there is a universal morality, there is right and wrong, there is evil, it argues for the existence of God, someone who has objectively defined it above us, and that's, that's what God has done. Otherwise, there is no evil, and uh, the atheist can say otherwise, but he's intellectually inconsistent if he does so, because there's no standard, there's no definition, it's all subjective. Anyway, little tangent there. Some things you can learn from general revelation. God has revealed himself to all people without distinction, all ages, all times. And he's done so primarily through nature, through providence, and through conscience. This revelation is limited. What it does reveal is true, is accurate, but it is limited. It's sufficient to condemn, not sufficient to save. For us to know God more and certainly to be redeemed, we need a special revelation, not a general, something specific, something direct. So let's transition now to special revelation. We're going back over this twofold classification of revelation, how God discloses himself to us. And in the twofold way, we've got general and special. Special revelation now, it is God's direct communication with man. This would encompass the oral, the written, and the incarnate revelation that we studied earlier. Now, most of the time, we associate God's special revelation with the Bible. But actually, God's revelation, his special revelation has come in many forms, over a dozen forms, which we'll read in just a second. As we mentioned before, though, where it bears repeating, the highest form of them all is that incarnate revelation. I want you to remember that, that that's special. Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation to man. We will dwell forever with God and with the Lamb in, in our presence. That will be the, the, the fullest access we will have to God's revelation when we are dwelling with him again. But for now, let's look at some of these other ways in which God has specially, specifically, directly revealed himself to man. Turn to Hebrews 1, and I'll read the rest of the list for you, but you can turn to Hebrews 1 real quick here. Hebrews 1, the first couple of verses, is a great passage on Revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke, so we're talking about Revelation, his special revelation. It says, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And you can stop there. So he, you know, Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ, and so he's building that. Christ is supreme in all things. He's supreme in revelation as well. He's the supreme form of God's revelation. But there's lots to learn in those two verses. First, he's acknowledging that God has spoken a long time ago to the fathers, that's the Jews, and he did so in the prophets. So God's revelation used to come through the prophets. How? He says, in many portions and in many ways. Throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament through the apostles, God revealed truths about himself. But he did so, like it says, in many ways. The ultimate is Christ, again. 
But let me just read you a list, and I'll read the verses for you. You have them in your notes, but I'll read you the verses. All the different ways God revealed himself to the prophets. You have direct address, where God is just simply directly speaking, like Exodus 33, verse 11. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. You might recall in the wilderness times or after the Exodus, there was a tent of meeting and God would go there and, and the, the glory cloud would descend. And it said God would speak to God as if face to face like a friend. And there was a form of direct address in some way, uh, probably through we would say a pre-incarnate Christ. That's what most would say in some, in some way, though God directly communicated with Moses. Same as when God called Moses up on onto the mountain and the 70 elders. They had a form of direct address, direct communication with God. Sometimes you'll have just an audible voice. 1 Samuel 3, 4, this is the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. You read that passage, you have Samuel and Eli, his father, and Samuel hears a voice calling to him. And so he, he hears an actual voice. And so he says, yeah, I'm here. Here I am. And his father, Eli, is like, well, I didn't say anything. And he thinks his father is calling him. But Eli's like, I, I didn't call you. And it happens a couple times. And he says, next time just says, you know, next time you hear the voice, Eli tells him, it, it could be the Lord speaking to you. So just say, here I am. What is it, Lord, basically? And, and that's what he does. And God proceeds to reveal himself more to Samuel, the prophet, in that regard. The last of the judges, the first of the great prophets thereafter. So you have an audible voice. Sometimes you have what we could say is an inaudible voice. I don't have a verse here, but this is probably what is meant all the times you see in the Old Testament where it says, and then the word of the Lord came to me. You see that in the prophet, the writings of the prophets a lot. They're going to write something and then they say, and then the word of the Lord came to me. Did they hear a voice? I don't know. Maybe sometimes, but sometimes not. Sometimes that's probably their way of expressing inspiration, which we'll keep for next week, but the way in which they discerned the voice of God and wrote, wrote it down. Sometimes you have a written tablet, an actual writing. didn't happen often, but on occasion God wrote something down and passed it along. I mean, obviously the, the one example of this is that the, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 31, 18, it says when God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. The original Ten Commandments, remember later Moses broke them. Uh, the original, it says, written by the finger of God. God had delivered them to Moses. They would have been perfectly chiseled. I'm sure a really nice font. And uh, I'm sure they're really great. I'd like to know what that font was, right? We could use it today. So sometimes, uh, on a rare occasion, you'll have a written uh, revelation. A very special one is the Urim and Thummim, or Thummim, rather, the Urim and Thummim. Remember these, these guys? These were part of the breastplate of the high priest, Exodus 28, verse 30. He's instructing the priest and says, You shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. It's, it's actually a little mysterious. We don't fully know uh, the, the, the function. It's just if you read the, 
the Torah. God gave many instructions for the priesthood, right, and the high priest. High priest had a special garb. He had a lot of stuff going on. He was wearing 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he would carry these two, I guess you, you, you can call them artifacts. And it tells you, I think, what they're made out of back in the uh, in Exodus and I think Leviticus as, as well. Um, we don't fully know what the words mean, and that's why they're just transliterated. We call them the Urim and the, the Thummim because it's a bit of a mystery as to what they really were. But uh, what their function, though, was a little more clear. They were symbols placed over. They, were, they actually were built into his breastplate that he would put over his garb, and they would they were located right where his heart was. It was a means of representing that he carried the, the sons of Israel with him wherever he went. He was the mediator, right, the high priest. And they were a way of representing <clears throat> Israel, the presence of Israel before the Lord. And it also says later that God would reveal himself through the Urim and Thummim and that they would be used as channels to the high priest where God would reveal his will to the high priest in, in some way that he would pass down judgments or have God's will through the, these, these artifacts uh, on his priestly garb. And in a way, a little, you know, obviously foreign to us and mysterious, but you can, I'm just giving you an example. You can take it and run with it and study those further if it piques your interest. But they are an example of God's, a form of God's special revelation, a way in which he specially, uniquely revealed himself to Israel uh, through the high priest. Another example, theophany, where God in some way takes on some human form to reveal himself to man, right? We'd say most of these, if not all of them, are, again, pre-incarnate Christ, a a form of Christ taking on human form. Non-incarnation, that doesn't happen, of course, until he's born of a virgin, but in some way taking on a human form. Like Genesis 18, verse 1, it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. It says, literally, Yahweh appeared to him. And he, he, there's, a, there's a guy there and, and two other guys. And we, we find that the main guy is, he's called Yahweh, and the other two guys are angels who go on to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So in some way, Yahweh took on human form. Uh, it's a way, in the Old Testament, he revealed himself to his people for various reasons. Of course, in the New Testament, we have, again, that incarnate revelation, the ultimate theophany. We already covered that. Now, in addition to theophany, there's angels, which we don't need to read the example there, but uh, God would reveal himself to humans through messengers, angels at times. That's another form of special revelation, right? Dreams. Daniel is big on this. Remember when we studied Daniel on Wednesday nights? He got a lot of dreams, and these dreams were actually ways in which God was revealing something to Daniel, some truth, some revelation to him. Visions. Ezekiel mentions seeing visions of God. Isaiah 6 he has a vision of the throne room of God. In some way, they're in a trance or they fall asleep. We don't know. Maybe it's a waking, a walking vision, right? But in some way, they have in their mind's eye a vision, a very clear vision, an encounter with God. And the purpose of these visions is God is revealing. It's all revelation. He's revealing something. You have providence. saw an example of that before. And you have incarnate revelation, like in Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And again, verse 3, 
Christ is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, there's no better revelation than in the Son. So that'll do it for this little survey here. <clears throat> A lot of different forms of special revelation. Why do we even have it? Well, special revelation was made necessary after the fall. General revelation was never intended to address man's sin problem. If God did not further reveal himself, including his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, man would forever be lost. God revealing himself in this way, it's actually a form of mercy. He didn't have to, right? creates Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. All of humankind is also fallen into sin and, and condemned in unrighteousness. God could have said, okay, and just let it be, not said a word, and people would live and die and be judged, and that's it. And God would be merely just, perfectly just in doing that. But as a mercy, he saves some, right? And grace, and, and to do that, he reveals himself. Now, that's why he's revealing himself. For the greater glory he receives in redemption. And so he, he must reveal himself to do that. Of course, like we said before, all of this special revelation was given to only a select few individuals. And it all be lost. If they didn't pass it down, it's lost. It would benefit them. It's good for them. It's good for Moses. But if he didn't pass it down, nobody else would benefit from it. And like I said before, sometimes it was not God's intention for it to be passed down. Like, for example, in Revelation, uh, John receives a vision of seven peals of thunder. And he's told, do not write down what they mean. Seal that up. Don't write it down. So some things God didn't want written down. But a lot of it he did. And so sometimes it was passed down orally, but... The prophets all eventually wrote down what they received. Whatever form of revelation they had, a dream, a vision, a direct address, whatever revelation they had, they eventually wrote it down, and it became written revelation. And that's that's the Bible. That's how the Bible was initially given. That's the first link in the chain. You have all, so we took the study of revelation, go from general to special. Special, a lot of different forms. It all funnels down, though, eventually to written revelation. All the different ways they received a word from the Lord, they eventually wrote it down, and that's what we have today. That's the special revelation we presently have and rely on to know the Lord. We don't have Christ with us physically. We don't have that incarnate revelation anymore. We need and rely on Scripture as God's lasting, authoritative, special revelation. That's why he gave it. If God wanted, he could have simply chosen to give every person a dream every night telling them everything they needed to know, right? He could have done that. We don't need a Bible. We don't need any written word. He could have just communicated to all people in a dream every night, give you like your daily devotional, little download to you. Here's his will for the day. He could do that, but he's chosen not to. He's chosen to use a book, a written form of revelation and his wisdom. We'll talk about that later, even some of the why and obviously the how. That's what this is about, how we got the Bible. But suffice it to say for now, God has seen fit to use the word. How highly does God view his word? Well, it's up there, right? God created all things with the word. Where God spoke, let there be light. And Christ is the incarnate word. And God is pleased through the written word to have people come to know him. And so for, for the rest of this study, obviously, we're going to focus only on one specific form of God's revelation, and that is, of course, written 
revelation, the Bible, the written record of God's revelation to man. This is the first link in the chain of God's communication. It, start by, it starts by him revealing himself, and they wrote it down. God used prophets for that work. And next time, we'll come back, and we'll learn how God ensured that the prophets wrote down precisely what he said, precisely what he wanted them to write down. And they did so free from error in an authoritative manner. That is the second link, which we call inspiration. That ensures that the, the revelation, however it was given, was truly captured in a written form. Now, obviously, we have to establish that link in the chain of how we got the Bible. How did it get into written form? We'll start into that next time. It'll take us several weeks, but we'll get going next week. All right, well, that'll do it. It's a simple lesson. It's just a one part tonight, revelation. But trust, helpful to you, and we have to cover that first link in the chain of how we got the Bible. All right, well, just on time, I'm going to close in a word of prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we, we, we want to thank you and honor you this evening as we read in Romans 1, for we have seen you in the world. We have seen you in creation, your, your work, your power, your majesty, your, your perfection is revealed in this amazing creation, a creation full of order and wonder and beauty and and magnitude. The number of stars to our own DNA is just mind-boggling how, how big and detailed this creation is, and yet you hold it all in the palm of your hands. It is nothing to you. You made it in six days with simply speaking. Your power far surpasses ours, and all we can say, Lord, from creation, from a general revelation, you are God, you are creator, and you are worthy, therefore, of our worship, of our lives, of our honor, of our thanksgiving. And so we want to do that now. We acknowledge you from what you've revealed. But, Lord, we thank you even more for your special revelation through which you've told us about our own sin and our need for a Savior and the coming of the Savior who even died for us to save us. We thank you for the message of life we have in your special revelation in the Bible, Lord, and we give you even more thanks for that, for not only do we know you, but we can know you in a redemptive sense. We can be saved by you. All, all the glory, Lord, is yours. It's all yours for all you've done in creation and in new creation in our hearts, Lord. We give you the glory tonight. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, and may we honor you and give thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.